I might have known this happened. You're up to all your old tricks again, aren't you? And by the way, no raspberries. Oh, I'm getting breath for raspberries. <laughs> I don't know. I'll bring a little currant. <laughs> not now, not now. Not now. I've been all this kind of thing, eh? I've been orchestrated. Is that the trouble working with it? Get out of there! <laughs> I thought I've got them again. Stop it! <laughs> They're all over the place. No, but really, it's the trouble. All this raspberry blowing, you know, it catches on. All through the rehearsals, all this week, everybody's been going around going... <laughs> Still haven't got it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right. It's a deep tone. It's a deep All right! <laughs> I know how to do it. I <laughs> don't start dancing with me. Why not? Because I like to lead. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Goon Pod, the podcast in which we talk about the Goon Show and the Goons themselves. Uh, my name is Tyler Adams, and joining me this week is Tony Cross. Very pleased and honoured to be here. Tony has come on to talk about, well, to talk about Harry Seacombe. Um, Indeed. But, but specifically, um, well, I want to say we have been reading his two works of, of autobiography, um, but I've read one and Tony's read both because I'm a slug of bed and Tony um, has really done the research. Um, but we're, we're going to talk about Harry and his life based on his writings. Before we get into that, as, as is the sort of time-honoured custom on this podcast, I want to ask Tony his history with the goons. Before we started recording, he did actually let slip that he is in his very early 50s. So again, you, you know, you, you're fitting into that repeat sort of um demographic that i keep getting on the show of people in their 40s and 50s who obviously weren't alive when it went out but presumably picked up it from lps and things like that is that right well actually i i come at the goon show from a variety of different angles before i actually listen to it properly that my first ever encounter with anything goon related is my dad refers to being ill as having the dreaded lurgy yeah okay so i didn't know where it was from but dad used that expression um, and then when I grew, as I was growing up, I got really into comedy um, and I used to read comedy books about comedians. I still do, actually. Books about comedians, books about comedy. Um, I was particularly hung up on um, From Fringe to Flying Circus. Yes. Yep. Because um, mm-hmm. I got really into Monty Python. And because I got really into Monty Python, I gradually realised that there was this pre-Python humour um, that I'd never come across. And that included The Goon Show. Parallel to this, I was aware of Spike Milligan because back in, it must have been the mid-80s, late-80s, I picked up from our local video rental shop um, the Best of the Q VHS. That's great, that. Yeah, I had that. I bought that. Mm. It's actually, whisper it quietly, all on YouTube. Yeah, I know. I actually watched it before we did I rewatched it just to remind myself of what was on it before we did this but I kind of 
thought this is this is mad. I want to know more about Spike Milligan. So I read a lot of books, and, and there, it was about the same time. You know, uh, Paula Paula Scoot is it Paula Scudamore? Scudamore, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She wrote a load of books. I think it seems to be in my head like about three or four books about Spike Milligan. Um, and she also wrote one about Spike Milligan's relationship with the poet Robert Graves. Um, oh yeah. Mm. And I was quite into, I'm, I am quite into poetry. So I found that fascinating. So by, and by this point, I'd virtually never listened to an episode of The Goon Show. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so the final straw was I, I, for about six months, I lived with guest of this podcast, John Dredge. Oh, he's never mentioned that. Okay. <laughs> we, we just shared a nice flat in, um, near Kilburn Park, in Kilburn Park. Um, okay. Coincidentally, very close to where Harry Seacombe first lived when he moved to London. Of course, because it's in the book that I've read. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, and um, while I was sharing a house with, with John, John's obviously, as you know, is massively into comedy. And he was the first person that lent me some Goon Shows to properly. Because I said, look, I know what the Goon Show is, but I've never really listened to it properly. So he lent me some Goon Show stuff to listen to. And I thought, why have I not listened to this before? Because it fits into all my lines of interest. Um, what's, and, what's the phrase? It fires the fires the synapses or something. Is yeah, that the phrase? And, yeah, and I love the anarchic nature. I didn't always get, and I, I did history as a degree, so a lot of the satirical contemporary references, I kind of know who those people are. Yeah, not always, but mo- much probably more so than a lot of people, mm. um, because I did sort of modern British history as my as part of my history degree. So, so, and I listed a few of them, and I, and I bought the first. Goon Show thing I bought was I bought uh, the Goon Show Volume Two on cassette, the one that's got um, Lurgy Strikes Britain, Napoleon's Piano, the International Christmas Pudding, and the Flea on it. Oh yes, all, uh, all, all well, crackers. Yeah. yeah, that's a that is a fo- that is if you want to be introduced to the Goon Show, that's four good episodes. Yeah, and I, and every time I think of the Flea, I still think the phrase the phrase did sport with Mrs Fitzsimmons. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, He's popping into my head for some reason. I remember. Um, I remember. I've always said the flea is the be- is is probably the, the best intro to for a newbie as a show yeah. to play them. And I I remember being a very pretentious 15, 16 year old having um, learned the flea by heart, um, <laughs> um, saying to chums, "I arose betimes this morning," or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You know. I also think it's a bit of a coincidence that one of the first goon show things I owned was the. Lurgy Strikes Britain, which, as I said, my dad used the word Lurgy all the time. And I finally understood where it was from. And uh, so I listened to a few more. I mean, I've probably only listened to, by the standards of a lot of your guests, I've probably only listened to about 20% of the, the episodes. Yeah. Um, I listened, I, now BBC Sounds, they, they put one up a week, but it may be more than that. So I, I kind of listen to those as they go up. So I've listened to more since. But I still think those four are, gonna, are my, are my favourite Dean Show episodes, partly because... First time of listening, but I think they're all four very strong episodes. They are, yeah. And 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 because of listening to that, that, that was kind of what finally drove me to listen to more. And as I said, I've I've got an ongoing interest in the history of comedy. I particularly really find that that era of the comedians that sort of from, I suppose through the sort of twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, that generation of comedians, the, comedian, the comedians that fought in the war. Yeah. Um, I I have a real fascination with. That era and actors actually of that that era. Um, I mean, even like I, I actually read Arthur Askey's autobiography recently, um, right. <laughs> and he actually fought in World War One. Yeah, um, but he was still on telly when I was a kid. 
in like 90s in the early 70s and i have a vague remember memories of him doing the busy bee song um but as i was growing up harry sickham to me was i knew him from highway yes and i knew him as a sort of personality not as a member of the goon show until i started listening to the goon show yeah, he well, he was an, uh, Mr. Mr. Light Entertainment, wasn't he? Yeah, because he wasn't really like Peter Sellers. I knew who Peter Sellers was because Peter Sellers had become like an international film star. Mm. Um, I knew who Spike Milligan was because of Q and because he was re- he was constantly referred to as like one of the great comedy minds. Um, I knew who Michael Bentine was because I'd watched Potty Time, but I really didn't know that Harry Seacom, what Harry Seacom did apart from sort of sing a bit, appear on highway and and just seem to be quite a nice man, fundamentally. Yeah, I'm exact. I'm the same with you because I grew up, as you know, in um, the Antipodes. I, I grew up, but I grew up in an in a Anglo-file country where we got a lot of British TV. Yeah. Um, we didn't get things like Songs of Praise or indeed Highway, I don't think. Um, I mean, in the 80s, I don't think he, he was only just starting out in Highway in the late 80s, I think. But, yeah. But I I really only knew him pre-goons from those specials, those TV specials. And even then, it didn't really, it, it didn't really, it was just, you know, he was on my radar, but just as as a, a big, fat, funny man or, or a singer. Yeah. Um, it's only been more, even when I was younger, when I got into the goons and I used, because it's so, you know, that was... 30 odd years ago because of the access accessibility of of archive tv now is so you can just access so much now that you couldn't access in the late 80s early 90s but i've, I've watched you know quite a lot of his 60s uh, tv work including where he's been a guest on shows he is a force of of nature on um a bruce forsyth variety special from I don't know if it was not might be called the Bruce Forsyth show from about 67. Yeah. And he's, he's a special guest and he's just on fire in terms of the raspberries, the giggling, the sort of the erratic jumping about and, and and not letting Bruce get a word in, you know, (laughs) Um, you you get, you get the impression and the books sort of confirm that a bit. That A lot of that was his dealing with nerves and it was, he was, he was, Directing his nervous energy, and the raspberries were like just as, he, as I think as he says in the in Rism, Well, it's called Rism raspberries. So yeah, um, he started doing the raspberries to nip in the bud. People heckling him. That's it. Yeah, get get oh, in oh, before they do. Yeah, get in there before they do. And he does blow a masterful raspberry. It must be said. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, when you see him on television things on in those old things, he does have a lot of energy. And he is. I think I think the thing with Harry Seacombe is that he's underestimated because he never he never really became like a superstar. Um, he never really had a, much of a film career, and he, because he was a nice bloke, um, and he never really left scandals or things around him. There were things where I think he put he doesn't really talk about his issues with his mental state, for want of a better phrase. For the moment, I'll think of something better before the end. Um, so he, he he sort of slips under the radar a bit, and like whenever people talk about the goons, they always talk about Ben Team and Milligan and 
and and all the stuff and and sellers and all the stuff they're doing. But at the centre of the Goon Show is Harry Seacombe, mm. and he is the centre of that show. In that that show would not be be able to exist without him. Number one, because I don't think I don't think another straight you couldn't because he's not really a straight man. No, he's not. But he is. He's the central character through, yeah. around around whom everyone else orbits. Oh. It's a hand operated piano. Stop it, Mariotti. I can't, it's a nervous <laughs> The piano drew up with a screech of brakes. The lid opened and a head popped out. Yes, folks, it was mine. It came with a body. <laughs> the legs I got from a second hand leg dealer. Hello, gentlemen, what ails me? Tell me, why are you driving that piano lead in? My chauffeur is ill. He's got a bad case of the nose. Oh, most painful. Yes, yes. The count here often suffers from it. Yes, nose is running our family. Ha, 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 ha. A dog. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, my quins. <laughs> Quiet, you laughing nit. Or I'll fetch you one round the knees with this starting handle, you hear me? <laughs> now, little square bladder. Now, don't tell me your name. Let me guess your face. You are... Krell Pneen. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> you see, I was right the first time. I never forget a tune. Actually, I'm Ned Seagun, licensed piano driver in E-flat and former hygiene orderly in charge of the 8th Army Ablutions at Alamine. <laughs> what? Then you must have a shocking tale to unfold. <laughs> no, it got torn off with the laundry. Oh. In that case, you must write your war memoirs. You'll make a fortune. My memoirs, you're right. I'll start immediately, if not before. Have you got any paper? Yes, but I'm wearing it. Oh. <laughs> and I'll write them on this piano. Let's see now. Chapter one. And and from and from all the reading I've done around not just the books, but uh, uh, he's also the sort of most centered personality of the group. Oh god, yeah. Um, yes. He's and he's the one that always does the negotiating between the other the other extremes. Um it's like in, in Aris and Rosberry's, he, he's disappointed when Benteen goes. Um, and he's disappointed when they don't invite Benteen to the last goon show of all. Um, oh, that's in, that must be in the, 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 the Strawberries and Cheam. Is that right? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I haven't, I've only read, uh, folks, I've only read um, Aris and Rosberry's because I've just been um, so busy doing this podcast and all sorts. Um, but um, but I, I, I'm obviously aware of Harry's career. But I have I have we've both read Arrows and Raspberries, which was the first volume, which goes up to. Um, I mean, it barely mentions the Goon Show. It, it goes yeah. up to 1951 to the first. Yeah, it kind uh, of second covers series. the first couple of series of the Goon Show, and then it stops. Yes, um, it's in. It's pretty much. I mean, to talk about the book and to give a brief. It, it, it was published, I think, in... Hang on, I'll look it up because I've got it in my hand. 1989, I think. Yeah. The first volume was published in 1989. So Arias and Raspberries was published in 1989. It's, it covers... It's chronological order. So it kind of starts with his birth and goes up, as, we, as we've just said, to the second series of The Goon Show and then stops. Um, now, that's the one we've both read. Strawberries and Cheam was published in 1996. Um, that's a big gap. Because yeah, it was, that it's is clearly big, meant yeah. to be. Arrows and Raspberries was clearly meant to be the first of two. Yeah, or even three, um, possibly. Yeah, so it's a long gap, um, mm. and also the structure of Strawberries and Cheam is not chronological. It it deals with it sort of that takes a sort of subject. So you, you get a chapter on the games, you get a chapter on radio, you get a chapter on theatre, 
films and TV, that kind of thing, rather than a chronological journey through his life. And actually, I think the second one is not quite as good as the first one. Oh, I, well, I, was, because, I was right not to read it then. Yeah. And, and also with Aries and Raspberries, you, you also get, he, he, he has actually gone and looked at stuff when he's talking, especially about the war, he's actually gone and looked at like the record, the, like the historical records to, to bat- buttress his own memories of what happened. Um, yeah, there's a lot of diary entries, isn't there, and things. Yeah, um, and he also he looks at, he looks at the official regimental history and stuff. One of the big things that jumped out at me actually talk, when he was talking about the war, and there's a, I mean, I would say probably two thirds of the book is is around the war, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. Um, it, it the thing that puts it into stark contrast compared to Spike's war memoirs. Um, is it's it's quite tame. It's he's he's uh, diluted it, and there's no barrack room language. Uh, he's obviously thinking of the audience that will be reading this book, and I'm I'm sure yeah. you know in 1989 it's more likely to be um, uh, you know older people, older ladies perhaps who are fans of his LPs. Um, yeah, they don't want to be reading effing and jeffing and um, bodily functions and all that sort of thing like you'd have gotten Spike's memoirs. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think he he also there's two things that are interesting as well in the war stuff. One, he does a, a great job of mentioning other people doing brave and courageous things. Yes. And anytime somebody in his sort of regiment or in the bit of the armies with gets a med like an MC or a VC, they get a mention in the book. Um, and also I think he do, he, he does a good job of making you aware that he actually had quite a tough after the sort of first quiet bit. I think he had quite a tough war, and and it had a re- and it did affect his mental state. But he doesn't make it a big deal of it. It's just there, and you can kind of feel it. Sometimes he mentions it, and he makes sort of little vaguely light-hearted joke comments about him being terrified. Um, yes, yeah, but it's always it's always um, it's always putting a brave face on things, isn't he? Yeah, I recently read. Tom Holland's book about who's a historian about Sicily, the Battle of Sicily, which is where Spike was for the sorry Spike, Harry was for some of the war. Yeah. Um, and the fighting in Sicily was horrendous. I was going to try and cross-reference the two books together, but I can't. I think my dad, I lent my dad them my copy of Sicily, so I haven't got it on me. But um some of the fighting that Spike would have been how keep with Spike, Harry would have been involved in was would have been really tough. Exactly. And, he, and yet he doesn't he dances over the details doesn't he, he doesn't yeah really break it down and there's occasional moments where he kind of lets you kind of reading between the lines like there's that, that bit where he says that um his officer said how oh, he they needed something collecting from the depot and they sent him to, as a part of the group to collect it even though he really didn't need to be part of that group but they were they knew he was under stress they were being nice to him yeah there's a bit where he talks about <laughs> getting a hospital bed but, yes. it's, but he's but it's because he's broken his glasses and and he's told he has to report to the rear for a new pair of glasses and somehow this he gets designated as wounded because because of this and he ends up through a administrative error being given a bed which should have gone to a, a private who got dysentery yeah um and, but he manages to get a decent night's sleep and then he gets found out and kicked out and um, yeah uh, but it just seems like his whole war career, because there's that, there's there's a story of him having to escort a, a deserter and losing him in a lift 
Yeah, oh yeah, that's um, a great story. That is a great story. <laughs> uh, um, the, the stories of locking one of the one of his mates at a they're in some old ball stall for training, weren't they? Um, yeah. And they locked one of the one of the lads in a cooler um, for a joke, and the lock broke. Um, and it was on a Friday, and they couldn't get a locksmith till Monday. So they they were ordered that they had to s- sort of stand outside and keep the guy company all weekend with you know talking and singing and passing things through. Yeah, um, it's amazing to start with when you go into action for the first time before you know anything about it. There's a kind of bloodlust. You get quite excited and. Uh, because you're firing at them. Once they start firing back at you, it's a different matter altogether. Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember once uh, having to obey a call of nature and suddenly, bing, something went over my head. And I turned around and there was a hole in the cactus thing behind me. And my first instinct was to get up and say, hey, be careful. And I realised they really meant it. <laughs> and from then on, your attitude changes. Yeah. It's a personal thing. But yeah, there's an ongoing thread of him getting into trouble by doing stupid things. Yes. Um, by doing playing practical jokes on people that don't quite pay off the way he wanted them to, or doing impressions of people like, or like his boss at the company he was working at before the war, and then being sent up to the boss's office and go, I hear you do an impression of me. Oh, yes. <laughs> do it. Do it. And But he always seems to get... He never really seems to suffer for these things. Um, but I think he gets... They stress him out a bit sometimes because he thinks he's going to get into more trouble than he actually is. And you get the impression... I mean, the one interesting thing about this is um, it's a book about a man who's pretty much had a, had a very... Because a lot of the time with story celebrities and comedians especially of this generation the, their childhoods are really dark and difficult sometimes mm. um mm. whereas with harry with harry seekham he seems to have had a really happy childhood yeah i mean is the only thing the only sort of tragedy in his childhood was was his was his older sister died which yeah, was Joe. four um, yeah but his parents were loving he had a loving brother and younger sister yeah um, carol they would have parties where he would go in outside privy and sing yeah. loudly so that everyone in the house could hear. <laughs> and yeah. that was, that was because of nerves and, um, you know, he didn't want to sing in front of them. So he'd go and sing. He's told that story many times, I think. Yeah. And, and of course he talks, he mentions um, when he first was it on a, in a stage, a school play or something, he took his glasses off because the audience would become a blur and it would prevent stage fright. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did that when I did I I did drama as my third subject at university, and oh, we right. had to do, we had to do street theatre at one point in the centre of Lancaster, and uh, I oh, t- I God I, yeah, and I took my glasses off for that very reason, yeah, because I it reduced I was so nervous and stressed <laughs> that it, not being able to see other people's faces trying to reduce the humiliation level to bearable. Um, I mean, I think the war it, the war does take up a fair old chunk of the book. Um, which yeah. I'm happy with because, yeah, I, I do. T- I like that too, and I like the fact that it shows him growing up, doesn't it? it shows him maturing. Yeah. He mentions meeting Spike almost as a as an aside, almost as an. It's like it's 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 not really given the gravitas the the first meeting with Spike that I think it deserves. Um, no, I, and I think it's interesting. He ch- he slightly changes his, his account of how what happened between Ares and Raspberries and Strawberries and Cheen, because he retells the, the their first meeting story um, in, the, in Strawberries and Cheen. And 
in the Strawberries and Cheam version is more aligned with Spike's version of their initial that first meeting with the gun. It's slightly changed between the two books. In the first one, it's just very casually thrown away. Effectively, this gun. We heard this crash. This bloke stuck his head through the tent. Said, "Have you seen a gun?" And it's like, "Oh, it's yours, is it?" And no, 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 no. This is the thing. What color? Yeah. Was, now he said that many times subsequently in interviews and things. And yeah. You, and and you know, like, and I'm thinking, and I'm I'm a terrible old cynic. I really am. But I think he never said that. <laughs> um, so so it is quite interesting. And and you. And what I didn't realise until I read this book, I kind of, I think I might have known at the back of my mind, was that although that was their first meeting, by the end of the war, they knew each other reasonably well because they were, they were in a hospital together, I think, briefly. Hmm. And then they were doing stuff in with touring parties and things. So they knew each other quite, not reasonably well by the end of the, by the end of the war. Yes. Um, which I didn't realise. I kind of thought they met each other briefly and then... They didn't really get to know each other until the war was over. But actually, the book, as the book makes clear, they kind of get to know each other before that. Well, that's right. And I didn't realise until, I mean, I have read, I had read Arias and Raspberries many years ago. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I'd, I'd forgotten that Harry met Bill Hall of the Bill Hall trio. Yes. I think before Spike met Bill Hall. Yeah. Um, so Harry, Harry, so after, just to give it context, after the VE day. So Harry's joined a concert party that, and after VE day, the concert party tours around Italy to entertain the, uh, the troops before D-Mob. Yeah. And he arrives in, they arrive in Salerno. Um, and then he joins him and Bill Hall, who he's met. They join the central pool of artists. And this is where they meet Spike or Harry meets Spike again. And uh, Johnny Mulgrew and Spike and Johnny and Bill then formed a band together. And Harry talks about spending a lot of time with Spike during this period. And, and he, he, and he says, he, he says, Spike and I chased girls, discussed philosophy, but most of all wondered what would become of us when we were demobbed. And it's interesting how then as the, they, they sort of, as more people are added to that group and they gradually sort of move towards becoming the goon show. It, it's quite interesting how they are, they also, pop up and meet each other and then gradually and and it's interesting in the in Aries and Rosberries he doesn't really talk very much about like Peter Sellers or no. um no he doesn't Michael Benteen in in detail you get sort of impression like he like he'll say oh um Peter was the only one of us that had a kind of showbiz background. Yeah but it's like he talks I think he talks more about Jimmy Edwards in the book than yeah. he does Peter Sellers. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, in Strawberries and Team, though, he does a, a sort of page on each of them. Right. Which sort of explain, it talks about them in a bit more detail. But I don't think, that even then, it's not, it's, it's quite interesting. It's one thing about these books is, is you don't really know, I, you wonder whether you, you, you get to know what Harry's actually feeling about anything. Um, mm. it's like it's a quite uh, there's a few exceptions there's a few exceptions to that the war stuff being particular uh, and his wife um, but you kind of feel like he's kind of not wanting to let too much of himself out there that what he's writing is quite business-like um, is it that the nature of light entertainment autobiographies yeah. of, of this generation of his generation light entertainment 
figures who wrote uh, memoirs and whatnot, you know, yeah. 70s and 80s. It would be very much all about business rather yeah. than rather than opening up. Well, yeah, like I said to you, I mentioned I, I read Arthur Askey's biography, yeah. autobiography, and that is exactly that. There's hardly anything in there that's about emotions or there's a couple of bits. And like he served in World War One. Um, and his, it, and it's more about what he, it, the work and what he was appearing in. There's some family stuff in there, but none of it's about how he. And there's an occasional thing, but nothing much, nothing much emotionally. And you're right, it's like Bob Monkhouse. That his, it's his, I think it's his second memoir. That's the one that's really more that was written much later. Mm. That is the one that's more personal, more open, yeah, personal. Yeah, and is I guess it is that generation, and and yeah, that's you know, our parents' generation, and you just didn't talk about things like that, I suppose. I mean, the, the, there's a few exceptions. There's one I can think of specifically, although I haven't read it, but my friend Gary has. <laughs> um, it's Jack Douglas. You know Jack Douglas from Carry yes. On? Yeah. Um, Alpha Ippipitibus, whatever his name was. Uh, he, he wrote a book in the 70s. And by all accounts, and Gary has read me choice extracts from this from time to time. <laughs> um, and on the one hand, he is essentially claiming credit for um, carrying post-war British uh, light entertainment on his shoulders. You know, he, <laughs> he, is the, he is the man who saved you know, British comedy um, from the doldrums. And, but also he's got a hell of a lot of scores to settle with people in that book. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the one thing about Harry Cleacombe, though, is you don't get any of that no. and 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 i suspect you probably would. there are probably everybody's met people they don't like but um i suspect harry seekham even if he didn't like somebody wouldn't say that he didn't like somebody he strikes me as that he would try to do his best to be polite yeah. regardless i am trying to think of any instant or story or anecdote that i've heard or read where harry's got cross yeah, uh, I mean, there are there are things where he you can tell it's something that's hurting, mm. but he plays it very light heartedly. Well, t- tell me about that. You mentioned you touched on it before the Ben team being excluded from the last Goon Show of all. What what what, what was that? Well, he, he, it's a re- it's a, just a part. It's a throwaway line, but he he says when they t- when he talks about um, doing the the last Goon Show of all, he he basically says, "Oh, Ben Ben team wasn't there," and I and I and I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Benson wasn't there, which I think is a shame because I think he should have been there because he was what he was with us at the start, and I think he should have been with us at the end. Yeah, um, I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm not sure. And also, you don't know whether it was Benson that said no. Maybe they asked him and he just said no, um, or whether they just didn't bother to ask him. Um, I don't know how he would have fitted in with because by the by, by last game show of all, all the characters were well established. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In one of the one of your earlier episodes, I remember you. I don't come if it was you who said talked about it or one of your guests. But when they were saying about people being forgotten as time goes past, although we know who the goons are, are they fading from oh, yeah. view? Mm. Um, and but but they're fading from view in different at different speeds. Um, Yes. Spike's, Spike's always got the comedy genius influence on Monty Python yes. thing. Yeah. Peter Sellers has always got Cluzo, film star stuff. Strange Love is still. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's still known for. Michael Benteen and Harry Seacombe 
let, are fading faster. Yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and, you, and I, I think Harry, I suspect that no, Harry will be virtually forgotten apart from some game shows enthusiasts soon. Well, I always say you can judge. I mean, just this i i received the um latest issue of the goon show preservation society newsletter yeah um and there's a little thing in there about a new uh, biography of sellers that's out yeah you know and this is what 40 plus years after he's after he's dead yeah after he's, after he's died i should say um spike you know the the it was the 20th anniversary of his death last week and yeah. um there was a lot on on you know in the media about that and there was radio four was playing shows and radio two as well i think and there was a lot of, you know a lot on twitter about it and obviously i did my bit uh, harry um now it was harry's centenary last year and mike haskins and i did a, a special show um which which was just about harry and we also um, talked about the film davy which he which he started one of yeah. the few films that he started and um but you're absolutely right he is you you could not i mean i could imagine there being more books about sellers more books about mulligan coming out you know at some yeah. point in the next five ten years even i could not imagine a definitive biography of harry seekham coming out no which which i think is it's interesting because i mean the as i said strawberries and cheese came out in 1996 has there been a book about Harry Seacombe since 1996? There must, I mean, you will probably know better than me. No, I don't think so. No. Exactly. And I find that, I do think he is worth a biography because A, he's part of one of the seminal comedy teams of, in British comedy history. Um, and actually, I'd argue world comedy history because the, there are American comedians that, have been influenced by the Goon Show. Yes. Oh, God, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also a key part of a particular era of British comedy because he worked with pretty much everybody. And and there's the, the war part of it. And it's ch- and I, I, I find it... I mean, I, I'm not saying it would sell millions of copies because, <laughs> because it wouldn't. Um, but I think it's worth a proper study. And I, I think it's a shame that... I mean, he's such. A, he seems to be, from everything I've ever heard, from reading his own books, he seems to have been such a nice bloke that I think it's kind of sad that he's just fading away. It would probably need to focus a lot on the relationship with Spike and Peter, um, and and I guess people like Hancock as well, who he, he was very close to. A book about Harry, but Harry's relationship with these troubled geniuses. The way he talks about Tony Hancock is really moving. He he mentioned the point about he wrote something for the for Tony Hancock's funeral, um, mm. and it's really moving, and, and it's and it is genuinely moving. And strangely enough, when I went back to Australia myself, his pianist Les Sands was my pianist and accompanist, and he said that when he, uh, I think he dropped him off at the hotel on the, on the night he died, and he wasn't uh, all that happy, and he thought, well, it was is what he told me anyway that that. Uh, his suicide was really a cry for help, and he hoped that uh, hope to be found before he'd uh, actually died. I can believe that in a way because he'd lost a lot of things that he valued. Gone, pity really. You do get the impression, though. Again, this is reading between the lines that he's a bit more ambitious than 
he would like to let on. Oh, I imagine he was. He can't yeah. get to, to his level without ambition. No, because and, and also he's, he he keeps going even with setbacks. I, there's a couple of times when you think if, I, if that had been me, I'd have given up and never done anything. Oh yeah, well he talks in, in Arrows and Raspberries. He talks about the famous and again it's it's there's a lot of anecdotes in this book that come that crop up in talk show. Yeah. Um, appearances. And he talks about the infamous Bolton appearance that he made in 47, <laughs> where he goes on and, 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 you know, does the same act that he's done, you know, tons of times with in front of other audiences. But the Bolton audience is really unappreciative. And the theatre manager tackles yeah. him at the end and says, you're not bloody shaving my time. Um, <laughs> he has things like, yeah, he has. And then, and then, but then he goes down the road to wherever Blackpool or wherever it is and does the same thing and gets a rapturous... Uh, response. Yeah, because I, I think that would have broke that Bolton thing when he tells that story. You could that would have broke. I would have never done anything. I'd have just quit there and then <laughs> and gone right. Um, but I suppose that's why that's why you have to kind of have some. There has to be some kind of steeliness to you to become a to become a professional comedian. Because you, I suspect every comedian has one of those at least one of those nights. There's that great story about because he says like Peter Sellers didn't seem to have any fear whatsoever. And I think it was Coventry where he came on and he put, and he said, I bought, I went to the shops and I bought this album. Why don't we listen to it? Yeah. It was, it was Wally Stott's um, orchestra playing um, Christmas tunes. Yeah. And they listened to the whole, he sat there quietly while they played the whole of the first side. And and then, and then, and the audience was like baffled and confused. And when it finished, there was a little smashing of sort of weird applause. Like people weren't quite sure what to do. And then he said, well, that was lovely. Let's listen to the other side. <laughs> Which is almost the sort of thing. That's almost alternative comedy. That's almost yeah. like um, someone like, I don't know, Stuart Lee might have the kahunas to do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the other good thing about, I think, Aris and, and Raspberries is you get a real idea of how your a career develops, like over time, like how he starts in the, doing the stuff in the, the army, um, develops the, the shaving thing, which is the thing he's, he was most famous for, but he realised he couldn't just do that. He needed other stuff in his act. So they gradually expanded stuff and the Ras, where the raspberries came from. Um, and, oh, uh, yeah, and he, t- he talks about... So he gets the... He passes the audition at the windmill. Yeah. And, and he's on 20 quid a week, which I worked... Sounds like at, a lot to me. Well, I looked it up at today's rate... Um, twenty quid back in nineteen forty-six is the is the equivalent of eight hundred and ninety pounds today. Believe it or not, that, so, that's a lot of money. So he was so he was um, he was bringing in just shy of what was that three and a half grand something like that a, a month. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know today's money, um, and he, and of course he was he met I think he met Michael Benteen there because Benteen in his with his, his double act Sherwood and Forrest was appearing at the windmill. Yeah. And, uh, and Vivian Van Damme also told him at one point to stop blowing raspberries. Yeah. Um, and, and so he did, I think he went on and tried, or well, he didn't blow any raspberries and, and died. And then Van Damme said afterwards, start blowing raspberries again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one of the best, that's one of the good best stories in it of, of like, of the, his early career. That is like, There's, don't blow raspberries. Uh, Blake raspberries. <laughs> yes. There's also, there's the story which um, I, I mean, obviously I've read this book in the past, but I've completely forgotten this. He talks about 
being told a story himself by um, Frank Muir and Dennis Norden at Jimmy Edwards' funeral. Yes. <laughs> and he said, um, he said he'd be, he, he hadn't realised this at the time, but um, Frank Muir, who knew Jimmy Edwards in the RAF, had sort of met a BBC radio producer and recommended Jimmy Edwards and told the radio producer to go along to the windmill to see Jimmy's act, um, which this BBC producer did. And then the next day, the producer said to Frank that um, he didn't think Jimmy Edwards was any good based on that routine. Um, he said, yeah, he's a waste of time. He comes on and does a bloody awful piece of business with a shaving brush and blows raspberries all the time. You won't get anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so Jimmy, so Jimmy didn't get the gig, didn't get the job. Um, yeah. Which makes you, which begs the question, which I would have said, well, surely Frank Muir would have surely piped up then and said, well, actually, no, that's clearly Harry Seacombe you'd be looking at there. <laughs> yeah. Especially, especially as, especially as uh, Jimmy Edwards was well known for his, Big bushy moustache. I don't know if he's well known at that point for big bushy moustache. Um, do you know why he had that moustache, by the way? Yes, I do, because um, he was flying an aircraft over Arnhem, at delivering supplies, I think, and it caught fire, and he mm. got burnt in the process of landing the aircraft or getting the aircraft back or whatever. At some point, he got burnt badly, and it's mm. to cover up some scars on his face because he was an early um, plastic surgery person recipient recipient yes. Yes. Um, yes and he so he grew it to cover up the the scars that's um, right to go back to the actual book um i think it's worth reading if you're in, if you're interested in the goons definitely i mean i'd, I'd read both if you're interested in the goons because it covers more yeah in a second but i think it's if, it's if you're interested in comedy and you're interested in like i am in that sort of period where between the sort of between the wars and post-war, then it's a fascinating, and then and what's a lost era of like variety um, versus sort of what we have. What do we? What do you call what we have now? Because there is there isn't really variety as such, but no. there's lots of stand up. There's lots of stand up comedy out there, and there's lots of that kind of thing. But you don't really have variety shows anymore. Or... Well, there was there was a, there was a heyday. In, what would you say? The early in the noughties where it was all panel shows, and that's yeah. kind of that's sort of tailed off now. Um, and you don't get you don't get those old theatre. You know those um, in the theatre they used to do those shows where it was some comedy, it was some sketches and some music and reviews. Some yeah, reviews. Yeah. That, that that's mm. gone. Um, I don't know. It's, what interesting. You, it's YouTube now and, and um, yeah. TikTok. And I'm going to sell like someone's granddad by saying that. <laughs> but uh, the book is the book. And I will say the book is very, I think it's pretty well written considering he wrote it himself. I, uh, see, what what I would take out of it, I'm not, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm not particularly bothered too much about reading Harry's, uh, Harry on the Goon Show because Harry always used to say the same sorts of things about the goon show, you know, time and time again in documentaries and chat shows, S Spike would throw up ideas like sparks off a yeah. wheel. And he would always use that phrase and he would use, well, I think I, sorry, the I, same, I, he, would, he would say the same, he would tell the same anecdotes a lot of the time. Yes. Cause most of the voices came from people we knew. I mean, uh, there were one or two characters that Peter um, introduced into the show who were based on, on definite people he knew. But Peter was very strange because 
He could never do his own voice on radio. And any time that uh, Spike said, say this in your own voice, he said, no, I, oh, no, I can't, mate. He had to hide behind a character. Mm. Whereas um, any, any, any voice I did other than Eddie Siegel still sounded like me, so they just stuck me with most of the plot, because otherwise it got very really confusing. I always remember being introduced by Philip Slesser. Now, Philip Slesser had been my CEO at one time in, in the last part of my army career in Naples. The only time he ever, ever spoke to me was I was coming down the stairs to get out, you know, and, and I was dressed up in a, in a desert scarf, all very sprawny, and he said, take that bloody scarf off. The only words he ever said to me. And the next time I saw him, to speak to was he introduced me on Randy Bandbox and he said here he is my old wartime comrade <laughs> Harry Seagull and I thought here we go over the top together Philip and he never spoke to me <laughs> and I think I think in, and I think in Mitch in Iris and Rosbys he basically just used to turn up and because he's he is both peripheral and central to the game show he's peripheral in the creative part of it because the writing is done by Spike and others yeah um, but he's central to the to the the end product to use a horrible term yeah um yeah and 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 he's central to and also he can definitely ad lib um so some of the funny because some of the things i love in older comedies are when the when people break up or they ad lib something that you know is an ad lib and it causes the other people to crack up um i love that in the goon shows when you when they when they make each other laugh yes um uh and actually in the q series i he they, they do that a lot in the q series <laughs> But I like that because it makes it feel like a more real thing than a. Yeah, sometimes um, you get the impression. You certainly get the impression in the Goon Show that it's genuine. Sometimes on the Q series, I wonder a lot of the time when Spike corpses, you sometimes think, "Is that just?" Yes. Is that sort of has that been rehearsed? <laughs> or, well, or... well I, I, I know he does a lot in the Q series. To he does a lot of the. Well, that joke died. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, I, I was expecting a laugh there. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Which I find, but yeah, but Harry, yeah, I think. Oh, sorry, I interrupted you when you were saying about um, you were less interested in the Goon Show parts of the story. Yeah, I mean, what I got out of Arrows and Raspberries was the, the most interesting part for me, as you said, for you was the the war years. I prefer reading biographies than autobiographies generally because you tend to get a dispassionate account. Yeah. Unless, unless it's someone like Philip Norman on Paul McCartney or someone like that who's got an axe to grind, allegedly. <laughs> um, if you've got a, a biography and it's a decent doorstop-sized biography, then um, you're going to get the facts more or less, aren't you? Whereas yeah. very often if it's an autobiography, it will be that person's memory, um, that person's take on events, yeah. And very often, though, they will sort of draw a veil over certain things and maybe highlight other things. And I would willingly, I would love to read a decent, definitive biography of the life of Harry Seacombe. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. I should Maybe I should write one. Maybe I should. Maybe you should. Mm. This, is, this, is, this is sometimes what I think is I think it's like a perhaps if, if nobody else is going to do it, perhaps I should do it. That, yeah. uh, but then I think then I think I think about those things all the time. And I think I'm never going to get around to it. I, it, you definitely don't get much darkness in these books. Apart, the Warriors has some, and and there's also some between the lines, as as you said, the, the little bit about his the death of his older sister Joan. Mm. There's a, there's a par- the paragraph on that. You kind of get. Um, I've got. I actually marked it here because it says um, 
he says, I, can't, I cannot remember her at all, but my mother constantly talked about her and her big, dark, violet blue eyes stared solemnly down on us from the large photograph in its oval frame, which hung on the wall in the front room. She was an almost tangible presence in the house until my sister Carol started to grow from a baby into a self-assertive little girl and gradually dissipated the hold my, that my dead sister had over my mother's mind. Mm, mm. And that's quite dark. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, that, but I thought that was... And the, some of the war stuff is the same. It's the kind of like... And, you, and as I said before, he... I think he, he makes it slightly harder to work out that he was having a hard war than he could he could have been much more direct about it um and you, but you know that some of it was tough yeah um he, he, he does he does mention he does actually fess up that he doesn't have a memory of lots of these incidents and he's had to rely on like you yes. said other accounts or his diary entries and things well, i remember i remember to, one this is one of the problems with for historians when they do interviews with people it's what they actually remember and what they remember from TV they've watched, books mm. they've read, films they've watched, and that stories become... Everybody start, gradually people start telling the same version of events because stories coordinate around... And so it's hard to... Yeah, because he definitely consults. He says he consults the history books and the, uh, the regimental diaries on stuff. And he consults his own diary. I mean, he kept his own... That's the one. That's one of the interesting things. And he has, he has pictures of his diary from the, the war period, and it kind of tells you it's a sort of day by day kind of like Saturday, twenty seventh of February, battle continued on the plain, but cons- consisted of small pockets lying up in gullies and nullers. Um, Saturday, Sunday, twenty eighth of February, much quieter. Um, and and there's stuff like that, so you kind of get that from it. Um, but the war stuff is the is the most was I found the most interesting and from both a historical perspective and a sort of getting to know the person perspective. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's one thing I just, one anecdote that I wasn't buying. Okay. Um, I mean, there's, there's a few, I think actually, I thought, Oh, that's, that, that sounds a bit embellished maybe, which, are, which is the nature of these things. Yeah. Yes. But there was one story near the beginning of the book that I thought, no, not having that, not having that. <laughs> just sounds too too neat um he talks about so he gets this this job at baldwin's factory as a, as yeah. a jun- junior play, uh, pay clerk and a colleague for reasons unknown brings in a gallstone that oh yeah that has been removed and shows it around proudly to all the workers and it's small and round and shiny and for some reason, he's got it in a, I think he's got it in like a white sweetie wrapper that he's keep, he's carrying it around in that or something, Can't, or a bit of tissue. And then Harry says that he, he took this gallstone and took it into another, an, another office and showed another colleague and said, well, what do you think of this? And said colleague sort of went, oh, and grabbed the gallstone and put it in his mouth and started chewing it. Um, obviously thinking it was a sweetie. And then when Harry told him what it was, obviously he spat it out and all the rest of it. I just thought, nah, that, that didn't happen. I don't <laughs> think that happened. <laughs> no, I, I, there are there are occasions in the book where you think, you know that French expression, l'espéré de escalier, that, that you think of something after when it's too late. Yes. Post. yes. There are a couple of occasions where you think, did did that was that how it happened at the time, uh, or have you respectively? 
said what you wanted to would have wanted to say or what you realized afterwards would have been a funnier thing yes yeah yeah absolutely but hey who are we to criticize no uh, i mean I, I do i do it all the time with stories you kind of edit them and make them funnier and put yourself in a better position um everything i say on this podcast is is has never happened i've just made it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i, I mean I, I i really enjoyed reading it and i really enjoyed reading both of them um I think Ariz and Rosebridge is a slightly better book. I think with the second one, it's more of a kind of like, um, oh, here we go. I'm going to try and put, uh, it's, it's more of every story I can tell. But there is an interesting, the, the most interesting chapter, there's a couple of good chapters in that. Though. One is the one where he talks about the, the sort of all the work he did entertaining the services abroad. There's a, mm. chapter, there's a whole chapter on that, which is quite an interesting chapter because he went everywhere. Like mm. he went to the Falklands, he went to the Gulf, um, Northern Ireland. I mean, he went everywhere um, and did. And he said, it's interesting. He says towards the end, people, you did get the impression that people didn't know who he really was. Yeah, because the the younger soldiers didn't have a didn't know. Well, or they knew him for highway, but they didn't know him for much else. Yep. Um, which oh, is quite. Well, interesting. Oh, we can. Oh, we can tell jokes. My God. Yeah. 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 And he he would get a lot of. Oh, can I get an autograph from Mum? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff um but there's there are some interesting and there are some interesting stories in there but as i said it feels a bit more like a a, a less well thought out book mm. um whereas Ardres and raspberries you feel like he spent some time working out what he wants to write and doing a bit of research to back up whether he remembers things correctly especially around the war stuff yeah well by 96 his health was i mean when did he 2001 wasn't it i think yeah 2001 yeah yeah but but he was he had cancer as well didn't he yeah he um, wasn't uh well because they told him one of the the other sort of interesting things in strawberries and sheen is the, the decline of his health hmm. over time and and the the sort of thing because he gets diabetes he gets diabetes that's right yeah um which causes him some real problems and he hurts himself very badly at one he has a a ruptured bowel or something and he ends up nearly dying in when they were on a holiday somewhere gold um i i i, I would say if, you, if you're going to read spike milligan's war book you should read arias and raspberries yeah yeah because i think the two the two make a good pairing and if only um <clears throat> peter sellers had lived a bit longer he who knows he may have written his war memoirs i i i'd say what i would love to, i i would I would love to have read a Peter Sellers autobiography because that would be. Oh, could you imagine it? Oh, oh that would have been score settling. That would have been. <laughs> yeah, that would have been. Jack Douglas. They would have had to. They would have had to spend more money on lawyers for that book than they probably would <laughs> on any other part of the process. Um, yeah. But yeah, because um, I've not really read. I've read Spike some of Spike's war books, and I've read a lot of books about Spike, but I've never really read anything Peter Sellers related. Oh, you should. There's a, there's plenty of books out there. The biggest one being the Roger Lewis. Um, I've I've heard stories of the Roger Lewis book. <laughs> it's 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 a good read. Um, I'll just leave it at that. It's um, it's very interesting book. Roger Lewis likes to insert himself into these yeah. books, if you know what I mean. And well, um, I remember some. I remember somebody talking about it saying it's it's the sort of one of those autobiographies where you get the impression the person writing it really didn't like the person they were writing about. Yeah, that's that's right. Yes, I, I do want to read the Roger Lewis book. I will get around to it at some point. Um, but is there any? I mean, I've got Michael Bentin's. I've recently bought on the John Dredger's suggestion Michael Bentin's autobiography, mm-hmm. which I haven't read. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that because I suspect that is going to be full of interesting stories. Yes, yeah. Um, Some of which might not be true. I'm sure, I'm sure. As with, like we said, as with all of these these autobiographies, there, there will be a lot of invention and embellishment along the yes. way. Uh, is there maybe, a, maybe not even deliberately, or maybe maybe just sort of subconsciously, you know? Is there a good book about the goons as a show, as a group? Well, there's the Goon Show Companion, which yeah. is Roger Wilmot. That's that's still head and shoulders above um, anything else, I would say. Um, yeah, because I, I I had I had one of the volume I used to have one of the volumes of the Goon Show scripts a long time ago that disappeared somewhere. With all my comedy books seemed to disappear when I moved house at one point. I don't know where they went. Yeah, because um, I had lots of stuff and they all kind of evaporated. Um, the one other bit that I'd like to read is from the preface of Ares and Raspberries, okay. which I think is quite interesting. Um, when a man delves into his past, he glimpses a stranger is vaguely familiar. Did I say that? Did I really do that? Only fragments of conversation come to mind and events become kaleidoscopic. One can only hope to reveal the essence of oneself and embellishment here or there is inevitable. An entertainer leaves little of himself behind after he's gone. A round of applause cannot be framed and a standing ovation cannot be displayed on a mantelpiece. The best memorial he can hope for is that at some time in the future, a man in a bar may say to his companion, that Harry What's-His-Name was a funny bloke. He always made me laugh. This book is for him. Ah, oh, that's a wonderful way to, a wonderful way to end a conversation. Yeah, about I Harry. think that's a nice, that's a very nice bit of writing, I think. Yeah, and, and self-deprecating as always. Yeah, as always. But, now, just before we, just before we say goodbye, um, yes. I just got a little bit more, I wanted to talk about housekeeping-wise. Mm-hmm. As I always say, if you could, you know, people listening to this, if they haven't already, please pop over to uh, iTunes and rate and review the show and also check out the Goon Show Preservation Society. They're on Twitter at the GSPS and uh, look into joining the GSPS as well because it's um, uh, well worth it. It's um, You get a, a, a quarterly magazine, you get access to lots of stuff, access to the incredible Encyclopedia Goonicus uh, resource which is which just has scripts and everything you could want um but i just wanted to mention that i've had um as, as this show has been going on we're up to show 44 5 6 now 46 maybe um i had lots of you know lovely messages and emails from people and and plenty of episode retweets on twitter and and you know it, it's we're getting a lot of uh, attention and uh, and that's really gratifying let me let me just say I, I had um, Henry Normal on as a guest uh, some weeks ago, and he mentioned a TV show with Barry Cryer because we, we were talking mm-hmm. about Barry, and he said he, he talked about this TV show and he couldn't remember the name of it. He said it had Barry, uh, Tim Brooke Taylor, and Graham Garden, and they and they were and it was very low budget, um, and he couldn't and I and I I was stumped, but friend of the show Andrew Pixley emailed me. Andrew Pixley, fantastic writer. People, oh, his, his, his Doctor Who knowledge is ridiculous. <laughs> yes, he's uh, he is multi talented in terms of. I mean, he he just he's got so much to say about so many things, um, and he's been so supportive and often emails me and and uh, you know says lovely things about the show. Um, but he emailed me and he said that the he said um, the Barry Cryer TV show that Henry was trying to remember was Yorkshire's rather disastrous attempt to bring Hello Cheeky to television. 
So <laughs> now I, I, I did actually think this because um, I, I thought it might be that, but it wasn't with Graham Garden. It was, um, it was Barry, Tim and John Junkin. Um, and Andrew goes on, he says, he says, uh, attempt to bring Hello Cheeky to television uh, on a budget which ran to a table full of hats and wigs and a chroma key screen. I saw them at the time and they weren't great. And when Barry died, I popped the disc into the machine to watch one. And sadly, it wasn't great, possibly worse. I'd love the radio version because it'd been so fast. Gag, 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 gag. But when I admitted to Barry a few years back how fond I'd been of it, he said, oh, thank you. But we wouldn't do it now. And he was right. Ladies and gentlemen, we present Moby Gladys. Our story starts in the little Welsh village of Clariadler, where, taking a stroll around the cottages to meet his new parishioners, is the incumbent. What are incumbents? Vicars. And district nurse to you, mate. The Reverend Di Francis pauses in his stroll to stand for a few moments by a magnificent old yew tree. Oh, that's better. Okay, well, Tony, listen, thank you, thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show. It's, um, it's been a pleasure. You've got a blog, you've got a website. Yeah, my mainly I, I'm on Twitter as Lockster71, so that's L-O-K-S-T-E-R-7-1. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, that's a mixed bag of stuff. Um, I have a blog called The Patient Centurion, uh, which is a Doctor Who-focused blog. Um, occasionally I do blog about other stuff. I would like to plug one thing. I have written some, a, a book called Across Time and Space, which is an unofficial Doctor Who companion. Right. Um, uh, we are raising funds for it on Unbound. I don't know if you're aware of Unbound. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it is currently 65% funded. So I would like to push that along. Uh, you can find that on the Unbound website, which is unbound.com. Uh, and it's slash books slash time hyphen and hyphen space. But yeah, so my my website is probably the best place to go, which is acrosstime.tv. Um, and that's got links to pretty much everything else. And I'll put, um, when you put this up, whenever that is, I'll put a, a link to that in my website as well. Excellent. Cool. All right. Okay, Tony. Thank you so much again. And um, Brilliant. I, I hope that we speak again. Yeah, cheers. Thank you very much. <laughs>